following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. It's good to worship with you guys. Um, and as we reflect on that passage, I want to tell you a little story about this movie that I was watching just a couple weeks ago. And I was flipping through the channels. Maybe you've done this before where you flip through and then you just pause and stomp on something. And you think, well, I'll watch this for a little bit. And it was in a scene in this movie that I was familiar with that I've seen before. And this man, a rich man, a very wealthy man, a very prestigious man, a very talented and, and well-to-do man was in his house. And he was an artist. And he had all these paintings up and, and all these sculptures and things that he had worked on. And his life was, to his standards and the worldly standards, very just great. I mean, he had, he had risen to the top and he was just living the life. And he goes from room to room in his house and he comes into one of the main living rooms in his house and he stumbles upon a couple robbers, a couple thieves in his house who are in there, in the act of robbing him. And at first, you can see the confusion on his face. He doesn't know exactly what's going on and then it dawns on him that he's, he's being robbed. And then you see these two men who, they're shocked as well and they don't know what to do. And so in an act of uh, impulse or frustration or, or surprise, they grab what they can and they go to the man and just attack him thinking, what can we do to make sure he doesn't follow us? And they beat him up pretty badly. They beat him up with tools and things that are around. They just grab lampstands, and they just, they just pummel on the guy. And they leave him for dead. Leave him just beaten and bloodied. And, and then the next scene, you see him in the hospital. And his friends are there with him. And as they walk in the room and they look at his face, there's this gasp that comes over them. And there's this crying, and they're just startled by what he looks like. And they've just taken the Band-Aids off, and so up to this point, he hasn't seen himself yet. And then another person comes in, and this woman, and she just begins to weep. And he says to the lady, he says, do you have a mirror in your purse? And she says, yes, but you can tell she doesn't want to give it to him. And he demands it. He says, give me, give me a mirror. And she pulls one out, and then she says, I think I have a smaller one in there somewhere. And he says, no, give me that one. And he hands, she hands it over to him, and he takes the mirror, and you can tell he doesn't want to look at his face. He's afraid of what he might find. And so he puts it down and just continues some small talk with them. And they can't get over it. They, they know he's going to look at it, but then he, he, he lifts the mirror up to his face, somewhat emotionless face, has no reaction, and then he slowly brings the mirror down and begins to weep. It is difficult at times to see a true demonstration or expression of what we really look like. Physically, he was just stunned. He was sad. He was shamed and, and felt miserable. It felt like everything that he had was, was now coming to a crash. And when we see an honest description of ourselves, it can be very hard. Now, when we see an honest description of ourselves, not physically, but when we, someone looks into our heart and peers into our soul and sees the kind of person that we really are, like our true colors, it can be very hard to look at. In, in our life group, in the guys' life group this week, we actually talked about this a little bit, about looking back into our life and reflecting on our life and, and asking the question, why are we the way that we are? And then when we really figure out and answer that question, it's really hard to look at. And it's really hard to do that. And we actually spend much of our life trying to disguise that so that maybe people don't see the person I really am. So on the outside, we, we try very hard to put forward a, a very good impression a very good description, a very well-rounded description of who we are. But if someone really sees who we are, it would devastate us. I imagine that when the people in this passage were hearing 
these words written by Paul, their pastor, they were, they were stung. They were hurt. They were devastated because they were a very proud people. They were a very self-important people. They had very high views of themselves, and they valued to such great measure their external image that they were putting out to other people. They were successful. They were wise. They were well-to-do. They were, they were established in a talented group. They valued it so much, so much so that the people in the church prevented them from getting close to one another in real community. It prevented them from getting really close and having a genuine faith with God because they valued themselves so much. And so Paul says this. He says, remember who you were. He says, let's, let's go down memory lane. Let's remember the kind of person that you were when Christ revealed himself to you and you believed him and you trusted in him and you realized that he loves you and died for you and has forgiven you. Remember who you were when that happened. He says this in our passage. He says, you were not wise. You were not powerful. You were not noble. You weren't any of those things, but this is what you were. You were foolish. You were weak. You were low. You were despised. And if it can't get any worse, he says, you were nothing. Wow, wow, really, Paul? I mean, was Paul being cruel? Was he being really insensitive? Was he just being like a really bad guy? I mean, he's their pastor. What if I came in on a Sunday morning and just said, I know, I know so much about you guys, and guess what? You're nothing. You're foolish. You're, you're despicable. You're weak. You're just horrible people. Wow, thanks, Pete. I mean, I'm glad you took the time to write this letter to us and... So they're, they're gathering around, the church is gathering around, and, and someone probably is reading this letter out loud, and, and they're thinking, thanks for taking the time, Paul, to write this letter to us, to tell us that we are just really rotten people. But why is he doing this? Why is Paul writing like this? Why is he telling them to, and, and really giving them a description of themselves, an honest description of who they were that was very hard for them to take? You know, because when we follow the conventional wisdom of the world, we find ourselves knowing very little about God altogether. We, we don't know what he's like, and, and because of the, God's wisdom turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Now, if we try to find God through the wisdom of the world, we will find ourselves actually very far from a description of God of what he's really like. Because the wisdom of God turns the wisdom of the world on its head. It doesn't follow that conventional wisdom of the world. You know, when you're weak and when you're struggling and when you're, you want wisdom and guidance in the world and you can turn on the TV or listen to the radio and you find the, you know, the closest uh, talk show, your favorite talk show, and you're, you're listening to people talk and you're listening to you know, this, this counselor or psychologist giving, giving insight into someone, and, and usually what you hear when someone is really weak and really struggling in their life, you hear things like, you are capable you are strong. You are wise. Your growth, your health, your worth is somewhere deep inside of you. And all you need to do is look inside and you will find it. The remedy to your misery and true description of your weakness in your life is somewhere in you. And the problem with that is you can turn to the next channel and see the pastor on TV saying the same thing. Sometimes. Sometimes. And that's the wisdom of the world that says defining the world and God and ourselves and who we are in any other way than how God sees us is worldly wisdom. But the truth is, 
We are weak. The truth is we are incapable. And the truth is we are at times, you and I, seriously foolish. And what Paul wants to do in revealing this true description of, these, of who they are, he wants to reveal to them, and by application he wants to reveal to us, what God's, God considers to be most valuable in our lives. Because in, in their view of their pride, they had developed this, this short-sighted faith, a short-sighted theology, a short-sighted belief in God that resulted in this powerless relationship with Him and a superficial relationship with others. And so my direction this morning is, is very simple. And, and I know that you can appreciate that, and I appreciate that as well, that it's very simple. We're just going to do a couple things. I want to explain two reasons why I see in the text why God reveals Himself to the foolish and to the weak. Why God chooses, him, chooses the weak and the foolish and the nobodies. And then I want to ask two questions as we leave, two reflection questions that we can hopefully take with us today and continue thinking about this passage. And so the first reason why God chooses the foolish and the weak is this. God knows us. He knows us. Now you're thinking, what, what do you mean by that? What, is it, what do you mean he, he knows us? Now I ran across this quote this week that read, Everyone is foolish, vain, and godless who wants to be. And I thought about that, and I, I felt like that was very honest and, and a very good description of who we are, just as people in general. No matter what your, your, your theological beliefs are, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, everyone is foolish, vain, and godless who wants to be. God knows us so well. And that's the truth. He, he made us, He created us, He knows us. He knows what we're capable of. And he knows us so well that he knows that we are like magnets attracted to a life centered around ourselves. He knows that if left to ourselves, we would just pursue our own good, our own glory, our own advancement, our own happiness. Like we're just magnets to it. Like we can't help ourselves but be attracted to things that make us look better. It's not too shocking, right? We all understand that. We're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's who we are. We're, we'll compare ourselves to one another. We'll always pursue the right thing in our own eyes. We'll never grow tired of pursuing our own glory. And that surprises me. Because we can grow tired in other things. We can grow tired in so many things. But the thing that we probably don't grow tired, is, tired in is pursuing our own glory. Each morning in high school, I remember very clearly, because I looked forward to it, each morning on the PA system... Uh, they would come on and give announcements, right? In homeroom, if you remember that. In homeroom, you'd start the day, and then you'd sit down, and you'd listen to announcements. And, and on the announcements, they'd do a, a few things. Um, they, would, they would talk about some activities in the day. They would talk about, most importantly, the lunch menu, right? Uh, what you're having for lunch that day. And then from time to time, they would talk about sports highlights from the day before from, from high school sports. You know, what, what, uh, what um, sports were happening the day before? Baseball, football, whatever. And I was so excited because something great happened to me the day before that morning announcement. I hit the game-winning home run in our baseball game. And I was so excited. And all I could do as I think as I'm rounding the bases, as I'm hitting that home run, and I'm thinking, they're going to announce me tomorrow. <laughs> they're going to talk about me tomorrow. And I wonder if they will lift me on their shoulders and stop school and, and have a half day. And, and it will all be about me. I wonder if they will carry me off the field. I mean, I couldn't help but thinking about all these things that would just make me look so good. 
And maybe in all of that, they will think, what a humble man he is. (laughs) Taking no credit for himself. It was a team effort. I couldn't have done it without my team. So the announcements came on, and people were talking. It was hard to hear over them. And I wanted, you know, everything kept me from just standing on top and saying, everybody be quiet. These are important announcements. They got to the admin parts of the day. They got to the lunch menu, the lunch menu and then they, they moved on to sports and, and, and tennis and swimming, and, and then they moved to baseball. And they said, the Bluebirds beat the Cougars, you know, 4-3 to three in a game-winning home run by Adam Schrader. I know the name. I remember the name <laughs> because it wasn't my name. That's not my name. He didn't do anything. He was the coach's son. He surely didn't hit the game-running home run. They blew it. And I could hear people talking, all right, way to go, Adam. Yeah, what a, that's great. All right, way to go, Bluebirds. Bluebirds, the fierce Bluebirds. That's, you know, what a great mascot. <laughs> the chipmunks, you know. What's... <laughs> no one will ever know that I'm great. You see, God knows that we are like that. God knows that we will pursue our own glory to no end. He knows that we dream about it and that we think about it. And we think about what can I do to be great? And what can I do to be great so that others might see that I'm great? It never leads to him. And God knows that if he left us to ourselves, we would never get to him. No one would. And so he chooses the weak things. He chooses the powerless things. He chooses the foolish things so that we could be with him. Because if he didn't, if he chose the wise things, if he chose the, the important things and the rich things and the noble things, then we would continue on this pursuit of being great. And he knows it would never lead to him. Our whole lives would be controlled by this insatiable hunger and appetite for the increase of our own self-esteem. Imagine that. It's not too hard to imagine. Verse 28 and 29 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses what is foolish and weak, so that no one can stand before Him in heaven and raise up a trophy and say, look what I've done for you. No one will say that. No one, when they stand before Christ, will have anything in their hands of any kind of worth that will make God say, I knew there was something about you that I got right. I knew that I chose the right guy or girl. No one will say that. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 may be familiar to you. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. He knows that we are prone to say things like, for he knows that we are prone to say things like, You know what? I think it makes sense why God would choose a guy like me. You know, I knew that I had some gifts that he would find useful, that he could use, and that it would benefit him, and and the kingdom is better off because of me. 
I knew that God could use someone like me to help fix all those sinners in the world. See, he knows that we think like that. You know, good job, God. Let me know if I can do anything else. I've got a busy week, but, you know, I'm sure I can figure things out and squeeze you in. We have zero bragging rights before God. And to these people, he says, let's walk down this memory lane together, because these people actually had a lot of bragging going on, and it was tearing apart their community, the the, the people in the Corinthian church. They were bragging about who they were, what they knew, and how how they looked and and the things that they had done. And it was causing a very short-sighted faith and it was causing a very superficial community and they were on the verge of of collapse. And he says, when you realized that Christ loved you and was gracious to you, were you wise? Were were you strong? Did, Did you come from a great family? Were you at the top of your game? Were things going really well? And he asked that to imply a different question or a different statement. That statement would be, you know, most of you were a mess. Most of you were tired and weak, and most of you were, were, were afraid, and most of you were, were struggling significantly. And yet God, in spite of all those things, chose you and loved you and revealed himself to you. And I see this, I see this truth in my own life all the time, every day. I see opportunities that God has given to me. I see blessings of so many kinds. I see favor that he's given to me. I see the countless times in my life where I've neglected God, and yet he has proven to be a blessing to me, and he's walked me through all those foolish things and faithless things, and yet he's given me so much, so much, and so many things that I don't deserve. What if God let you make your own decisions, and gave you the consequences of all your foolishness. None of us could stand before him with anything left to brag about. I don't have an impressive family tree. I'm the middle of seven kids, the son of a German father and the son of a Jewish mother. I have conflict embedded within my DNA. There's nothing in my life that God would say and look at me and say, now that's a guy who has it together. Now that's a guy who could be useful in my kingdom. I wouldn't mind having a guy like that on my side. I promise that I am a person of significant weakness, of significant foolishness, just to ask my wife. And I would imagine that most, if not all of you, have a similar story. Everybody has a crazy uncle. If you don't, you might be that crazy uncle. (laughs) Everybody has dysfunction just rooted and embedded in their life. And I like what he says. He says, not many of you came from nobility. Not many of you were well off. Not many of you were wealthy and wise. And I like that because some of you are. Some of you come from great opportunity. Some of you come from great wisdom and prestige and position. And yet even us, and even some of you who are that, we have no bragging rights before God. But I bet if all of us would take some kind of inventory, we would, we would be among that group of foolish and dysfunctional and not of noble birth and not much to brag about. And you look at your family and you would say, how did I somehow get rescued from that cycle of dysfunction because God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise 
It wasn't because of you. It was because of Him. God says, I choose what is foolish, what is weak. This is what qualifies me as a recipient of God's gracious work. This is what qualifies you as a recipient of His love and favor. That you are weak, that you are foolish, that you do not have it together. But still, even for the Christians, it's not, an easy, it's not easy for us to hear this because there's something in us, something deep inside of us that wants God to look at us and be impressed. And so we continue in our life trying to impress God. Even if you're a Christian, even if you trust in Christ, even if you believe this message and, message and say, you're right, I am nothing, I am foolish, I am weak, there's something in you that still tries to impress God. It wasn't our great impression. It wasn't your great first impression before God that turned him on to you. It was your weakness that made you qualified. Now, there's something that's going on in the Corinthian church that made them on the verge of collapse, and we're not immune to that today as a church. We are not immune to the same struggles that they are facing. That's why I call this series Lessons for the Modern Church, not because it's fancy, but because the things that they are struggling with are the same things that we are struggling with. At the heart of it, we can see this great application. There's only one option when this happens. You know, when there's this, the theology of this Corinthian church followed God's wisdom, right? So their belief, their head knowledge, their, their belief in God, their belief in Jesus for dying for them and forgiving their sins, their theology followed God's wisdom, but their practice followed the world's wisdom. And we can fall temptation to that too. As a people, as a church, we can say we, we, we know what we believe, but then our practice follows what the world believes. And this is very dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because when that happens, there's only one of two options that we have. And this is what's going on with these people. Either we will abandon our sinful lifestyle, or we will abandon our theology. Those are the only two things that can happen. We will change our life or we will change our belief. If, we, if our life and our wisdom and our emotion and our, our discerning and our logic and our planning follows what the world thinks is right, but our head follows what God thinks is right, eventually one is going to overcome the other. Our life will change or God's presence in our life will change. And when our theology changes, it's very convenient to never change our lifestyle. If your theology changes and what you believe about God's wisdom changes, no one's ever going to bug you to change your lifestyle. And you'll never have any cause or reason to. And this church was headed in that direction. So Paul reminds them, there's no room for bragging before Christ because he's chosen you in your weakness in your foolishness, and at a time that you were seeking your glory and your comfort and your esteem, he was pursuing you. He knows our intention. He knows our heart. He knows the answer is to choose us by a different criteria, criteria than our wisdom. Not our strength, but our weakness. And I want to move on to the second answer the reason why, why does God choose the foolish things and the weak things? And this is the second one. It's because He delights in us. 
He wants us to be with Him. To experience this life of strength that is working through us, that is empowering us, that is enabling us to enjoy Him and to benefit from Him. He knows the only way for us to unite with Him is not in our strength, but in our weakness and in our foolishness. And Paul understands this so well. He told of a time when he struggled. There was a something in the life, we don't know specifically what it was, but it was tormenting him. He called it a, a thorn in his flesh. And it was bothering him. It was causing him his faith to be tested. And he asked God to take it away, but God didn't take it away. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life? Where you've had this emotional anguish, where you've had a physical pain, where you've had a spiritual low in your life, and you ask God, God, will you change these circumstances so that I might have comfort and and peace and, and stability and contentment in my life? And he doesn't do it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Three times I pleaded with God that it would leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This struggle, this trial, this weakness is because in some way God delights in you. And he desires for his strength to work in you so that you might enjoy him in a radical way. Why isn't God, hasn't God taken this away? Because he delights in you. And he wants you to find your complete joy in him. And the only way, he knows the only way that we will find that is if he will work through our weakness, not by taking it away, but by drawing us to himself. What are you going through? What are you asking God to change and to take away in your life? Maybe he doesn't want it to be taken away. Because maybe there's something inside of you that is drawn to finding comfort and strength in something else other than God. And God says, I won't take it away. Not because I hate you, but because I delight in you. And I want you to be with me. And I want you to know the contentment that it can only come through my power in your life. God is committed to us. And he says, I'm going to work in your life in such a way that I will restore and I will renew and I will strengthen all those broken hearts and all those broken areas of your life. We want God to take away the pain and give us joy, but this joy is made perfect in our weakness. God takes what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God, if you love me, and you care for me, the rational thing would, would be to take away this pain so that I could be happy. And he says, that's the world's wisdom. And that's not the way I work. But my power is made perfect in your weakness. My contentment is made perfect in your weakness. My joy is made perfect in your weakness. Because only I can be the supply of unending joy. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. There were people that were struggling that were around him. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. Listen to this. 
and understanding and revealed them to little children. Very similar theme is what we're talking about here. Yes, Father, in verse 26, for such was your gracious will. So Jesus is saying, God, this is what you've planned from eternity past. You have set the rules in place by which you are going to operate, and this is what you've decided. That you're going to give your strength and your, and your love and your grace, not to people who have figured it out, but you're going to give it to people that are like children. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here's what he says in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor, and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have heard this verse so many times. I have taught on this verse so many times. And so often when I read this passage, you know what goes on inside of my mind? I see Jesus in a robe at a pulpit saying, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And like he's some kind of like, I don't, I don't know, it's something weird going on there. That he's, he's, he's a robot. I have the answer to all of your pain. And I want to see that with a fresh new perspective. <clears throat> he's meeting with these people who are broken, who are weak. And the Jewish leaders, the spiritual leaders, the pastors of their time are saying, this is what you need to do, what God requires for you to be loved and forgiven by him. And the people are broken because that yoke on their shoulders, on their spiritual shoulders, is heavy. And they say, we can't do this. We can't live up to their standards. I can't be perfect. I can't be wise. I'm poor. My family is is a mess. And Jesus says, then come to me. I will give you rest. Are you a mess? Are you struggling? then you are the perfect candidate. Don't mean to get all political there. (laughs) Come to me. Why? Why can we trust in Christ and why he's saying that? He says, my requirements, my burden, my yoke is light. It is not in what you can do for me, but what what I have done for you. I don't choose you based on what you can come to me and and offer me a trophy and say, here's the gifts that I've brought you. Is this good enough? He says, I have carried, and this is the beautiful truth, this is the beautiful theology of the Bible, that because God has carried upon him and Jesus Christ all the requirements that you and I must carry, but can't, he's able to give it to us freely. He has become strong. He was strong and he has given that up and died on a cross and become foolish for us and become weak for us so that we can have his strength. And that's why Paul says, I will boast in my weakness because his power is made perfect in my weakness. He invites all those who are laboring in life and are tired of it, who are struggling and can't get it right, 
struggling to connect their theology with their behavior, those who are struggling to find rest in the struggle of their own sanctification. Come to Christ, not in your strength, but in your weakness. Some of you might feel or believe, I know I need God, I know I can't do it on my own, but there's a couple things that I just need to get in order before I do that. He says, come to me now. Come to me before you do that, before you clean up. Let me come into your house when it is a mess. People can clean their houses before guests come over, but you know how messy they are when you go into their their bathroom. When you open the lid on the toilet, you say, you didn't get it all. And we can't get it all. We can clean ourselves up. We can come before God and we say, look, 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 this is good. This is good. I'm, I'm, am I acceptable now? And he's, gonna, and he's always going to say, you didn't get it all. So just come to me when you're a mess. Are you feeling inadequate? That's perfect. Because you're the kind of person that God loves to love. You're the kind of person that God loves to use. You're the kind of person that God loves to have his power work through. Acknowledge your weakness before God. Acknowledge your frailty before God. Don't cover it up, but be honest with it. Look to Christ as your Savior and your righteousness. That's the next step. Say, okay, I am weak and I can't do it. The answer, Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me if you're weak. And that's what we do. We look to Christ and we move to Him and we say, thank you for becoming my strength when I couldn't do it. Christ loves to restore. He loves to mend. He loves to make new. And He can do it like nobody else. Let God love you. Let God mend you. Let God be your strength. And do that today, every day. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful for you and grateful to you for who you are and what you've done. In our weakness, we try to cover it up. We try to be strong. We try to be right by you. We try to meet all your rules. And at the end of the day, we are still lacking in so much. And here's the scary thing. You know us. You know that we're a mess. You know that we're weak. Even when we try to prove and convince you that we are great and impressionable and just really impressive people. Help us to come to you every day. To find our rest and our comfort in you. Help us to not run to any other worldly, any worldly wisdom or logic. But to come to you and find our strength. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.